0: Revelation chapter five. The title of the message this morning is "Worthy is the Lamb." The story is told that a young man once came to the famous American author Mark Twain and asked him for some financial advice. So the up-and-coming entrepreneur wanted to know how to invest his money wisely so that he could retire a millionaire, and. Mark Twain answered him by saying, "By land, they aren't making any more of it. Now one could argue convincingly that much of world history is the story of man's pursuit for land and property. Our world has been shaped by a series of real estate deals and deals. Go all the way back to the ancient world. Alexander the Great stretched an empire across our world that began in Greece and went down to Egypt across the Middle East and as far as India. And yet we are told that at the height of his conquest, he went into one of his palaces to weep, for there were no more worlds left for Alexander to conquer. We could talk about the days of colonialism when the Europeans met in Berlin, Germany at the so-called Congo Conference in 1885. And that meeting was called so that the European powers could then carve up Africa to decide which European countries would control territories in Africa along with those vast resources. We could look at our own country here in the United States. Our country has been the object of Two of the most lucrative real estate deals of all time. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson bought 800,000 square miles of land west of the Mississippi River. He paid only $15 million to the government of France in what is known as the Louisiana Purchase. And thus our country was more than doubled in a day. And then in 1867, the United States purchased the Alaska Territory from Russia At the cost of $7.2 million, we bought that for about two cents an acre. Not a bad deal. And so, as history has moved forward, the maps have been redrawn. The territories have been expanded and and shrunk. Nations, war, and, and blood is shed all for a plot of land. But we come to the Bible and in Psalm 24 verse 1 we read this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now we understand that God made it all, God owns it all, God has redeemed it all, and one day He's going to take it all to Himself. And when we come to Revelation chapter 5, I believe that this is hands down the greatest real estate deal of all time. Now the scene that we are going to study is really a continuation of what John began unfolding in chapter 4. We are ushered back again into the throne room of heaven where seated in glory and majesty is God the Father. And then around the throne, we see the 24 elders seated on their thrones, clothed in robes of white, each wearing crowns. And we learned last week that the 24 elders are representatives of the church. In front of them are the supernatural beings, the angelic creatures known as the four living creatures. They carry out the will of God. They exist to worship and bring glory to God, And they are awaiting their next assignment from heaven. This awesome scene that we are going to look at is punctuated by crescendos of praise and worship in heaven. And as chapter 5 begins, we notice that the choirs of heaven hush for just a moment. And John witnesses a sacred moment take place between God the Father and God the Son... And what follows is a real estate transaction that's out of this world. We notice as we begin number 1 in verse 1 of chapter 5, the written scroll in heaven. Read with me verse 1 and you will see this. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, as you study the book of Revelation, you learn that there are several volumes in God's heavenly library. One of those books is called the Lamb's Book of Life. We saw it already mentioned in Revelation 3 verse 5. We'll see it again in chapter 13 verse 8 and 21-27. The Lamb's Book of Life is that which records all the true believers, those who have made a decision for Christ. There's another book in God's heavenly library called the book of works. And we see that that's opened later on in chapter 20, verse 12. And the wicked, the sinful, are judged by their deeds out of the book of works. And then here in chapter 5, verse 1, we read of another important book. It's called a scroll, actually. And it is unique for very many reasons. First off, we notice its completeness You will notice, as we read, that it is written on the front and the back. And what that means is that nothing more could be added to it. If you know anything about ancient letter writing and documentation, they usually wrote on one side, but very rarely did they write on the back side of a document. And so we see that this is very important because it's been filled to the top and the bottom on both sides of the scroll. Then we notice also its exclusiveness. It's sealed with seven seals. That's important because it means that it is reserved for the person with the right authority to lay hold of the scroll. That person who meets the right qualifications, has the right credentials, only they can break the seals on this scroll and open it and read its contents. Now, John doesn't tell us in this text what exactly is on the scroll. But we know the Old Testament. And if we go to Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm, we learn that this scroll is the title deed of the earth. Notice what it says in Psalm 2 and verse 8. A preview of this moment. The Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And so we see that what is... Being handed forth in the throne room of God is the title deed to whoever holds the title deed that possesses the earth, the fullness thereof, and all those who inhabit it. Now, as we continue to read in Revelation, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to notice that the seals of this scroll are going to be opened. And as each one is opened, a corresponding judgment will then take place on the earth. So our scene begins with number one, the written scroll in heaven. Then as we notice in verses 2 through 4, a worried search through heaven. Notice what our passage says. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is overwhelmed with grief and with despair because no one in the heavenlies is qualified to break the seals, open the scroll and read it. Now notice what the angel did not say. The angel did not say, who is willing because there have been many generals and kings and conquerors down through the ages who were more than willing to try and possess the earth, but they were not worthy. We could think about the Old Testament figure of Nebuchadnezzar, which we read of in the book of Daniel. Many consider him to be one of the greatest rulers of all time. And yet in chapter 3 of Daniel, we see that he built that golden idol there on the plains of Babel. And he demanded all of his subjects to bow before it and worship him. But God humbled him. God made him as a beast for seven years and to eat grass like an ox. We mentioned Alexander the Great, another one of those who tried to possess the earth. And yet, when he died, his empire was divided four ways. We could talk about Napoleon, that great ruler who seized control of Europe and Egypt as well. And yet when you get to the end of his life, he dies a very sad death confined to a small island in the middle of the Atlantic as he lives out those last days as an exile. We could talk about Hitler who promised a thousand year Reich that would march across the face of the earth and yet his dynasty only lasted 12 years. John wept because without a worthy redeemer to take back control of the earth, then all of creation would be forever subjected to the curse of sin and ruin and death. J. Vernon McGee, the great Bible commentator, wrote this concerning this passage. He said, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people throughout the centuries. They're the tears of Adam and Eve as they viewed the still form of their dead son Abel and sense the awful consequences of their disobedience. These are the tears of all the children of Israel in bondage as they cried to God for deliverance from affliction and salvation. They are the sobs and the tears wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they have stood beside the graves of loved ones and experienced indescribable heartaches and disappointments of life. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's good creation. No wonder, he said, John wept, for if no Redeemer could be found to remove the curse, it meant that God's creation was forever consigned to remain in the clutches of Satan. So we see there's a written scroll in heaven. Then there was a worried search through heaven. But then number three, our text takes a dramatic turn when we notice the worthy Savior of heaven. John's tears are quickly turned into triumph because a new candidate appears in the midst of heaven's throne room. The glorified Christ enters in and we see that He is worthy, that the Lamb is worthy to take possession of the scroll. Why is He worthy? Well, this text gives us a couple of reasons. First off, He is worthy because of who He is is. Notice what we read in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Somebody in the church say amen. He's worthy because of who he is. Notice the titles that are given to him. This elder comforts John announcing Jesus with two titles. First off, we see that he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's taken from the Old Testament reference in Genesis 49. It's actually a prophecy made by the lips of Jacob. And we know that there that Jacob predicted that the Messiah would be born on the earth and he would come through the tribe of Judah. And we know from Matthew 1, when we open that gospel, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus has the right credentials to claim the kingship of the Jews. He comes from Abraham and from David on down to Joseph. He has the credentials to open the seals and to be the king of the Jews. Then we also see in verse 5 that He's called the root of David. The root of David... What does that mean? Well, that's another reference to a messianic prophecy that we find over in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we are told that the Messiah would also be a descendant of David. But notice that our text calls Him something very peculiar, the root of David. Meaning that from Jesus, David would come forth, right? Right? So how can that be? How can Jesus be both the ancestor of David and how can He be a descendant of David? This really baked the noodle of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22. They asked Jesus this very question. They didn't get it. But the answer is wrapped up in Jesus' dual nature. He's both God and He is man. He's the God-man. In His humanity, yes, Jesus was born into a family from the lineage of David. And in His deity, He is the ancestor of David because He eternally existed. Church, I'm telling you today that because of who He is, He is worthy to take the scroll and lay hold of the inheritance of this earth. Worthy is the Lamb who's seated on the throne. We crown you now with many crowns, for you reign victorious, high and lifted up. Jesus, Son of God, the treasure of heaven crucified, worthy is the Lamb. He's worthy because of who He is. But then He's also worthy because of what He's done. Verse 6 explains this and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, watch this, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Notice that John pictures Jesus here as... The Lamb standing as though He had been slain. The 24 elders break out in a crescendo of praise because of what Christ did at Calvary where He paid the ransom to free the church and to free creation from the curse of sin and death. You see, Jesus is both the Lion and the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the willing sacrifice who laid down His life that He might take it up again. But He's also the Lion who comes in power to conquer and rule. In fact, He is the conquering Lion because He was willing to be the suffering Lamb. John highlights a couple of attributes of Christ in His ability to rule the earth. He's pictured here as omnipotent. That's seen in the seven horns. That's a a symbol. In prophetic passages, horns are always a a picture of power. And of course, seven is God's perfect number of completion. And then He's also pictured as omniscient. That's all-knowing. The seven eyes are a, a symbol of that, that nothing escapes His view. That He sees it all, that He knows it all, and that He has power to do all. Now, if you take all of these attributes together, we see that Christ is fulfilling an Old Testament picture. An Old Testament type known as the kinsman redeemer. If you've ever studied the book of Ruth or the Old Testament, you know how this works. You see, the Old Testament law stipulated something very important called the redemption clause, which said this, if you were a landowner and you'd been given an inheritance of land, and somehow you lost that, maybe you had a bad year of crops, or maybe something happened and you had to sell your land to pay for something else, to mortgage it. There was a stipulation in the law that you could have somebody of near kin to buy it back and give it to you. And the principle is clearly laid out in Leviticus chapter 25 and also the book of Ruth. That's who Boaz was, in the book of Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer who got the Gentile bride and the land. Every kinsman redeemer had to meet some qualifications, though. They had to be a relative member of the family. Secondly, they had to have the financial means to carry out the responsibility. They had to have the bank to do it. And then thirdly, the redeemer had to be willing, had to undertake the cost that was involved with that and the legal proceedings and all that that would entail. And when we come to Revelation 5, we see that Jesus is acting in the role of the kinsman redeemer and the land that He is buying back, the land that He has purchased is the whole earth Himself because God the Father promised it Him as an inheritance in Psalm 2. Now how does this play out? Jesus became a near kinsman to us when He took on human nature. The Bible says that He came as a servant. That He humbled Himself even to death and death on a cross. There's one mediator between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus. Then we see that He paid the price. You see, the kinsman redeemer had to foot the bill to buy back the land. Well, Jesus paid that price on the cross with His own blood. And by His blood, we are ransomed. We're not purchased, we're not owned by gold and silver, the traditions of men, Peter says, but by the blood of the Lamb of God. And then, of course, the kinsman redeemer has to be willing to lay down his life. And Jesus was willing, wasn't he? He said... You don't take my life from me. I lay my life down of my own accord and I have authority to take it back up again. And so we see that just like Boaz in the book of Ruth, Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He has purchased a Gentile bride from every nation, kingdom, tribe on the earth. It's called the church. And He is taking back possession of the earth as His inheritance. He gets the bride and He gets the land. Amen. And now we come to the most critical part of this whole passage number four, the worship songs in heaven. The worship songs in heaven. The rest of our passage is devoted to the chorus of praise that breaks out in the throne room of God as the Lamb, as Jesus Christ takes hold of that title deed. Because the church knows that the Lamb's work is done, and now it's time for the lion to begin his work. The deliverance of the earth is at hand as the seals of the scroll are opened. Each one popping means it's a signal that Satan's time is running out and the time of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, the Lamb of God has come. Listen to what John MacArthur wrote about this. He said, The spontaneous outburst of worship results from the realization that the long-awaited defeat of sin, death, and Satan is about to be accomplished. The curse will be reversed. The believing remnant of Israel will be saved. And the church will be honored, exalted, and granted the privilege of reigning with Christ. All of the pent-up anticipation of millennia finally bursts out at the prospect of the grand redemption that is about to take place. Friend, for 2,000 years, the church has been waiting for this moment. They have suffered. The church has been beaten and persecuted and knocked down by the world, cast aside, and now in the throne room of heaven, having been taken out of the world, a worship scene takes place where the scroll is given to the Lamb and all the anticipation of the ages of Jesus' coming kingdom is about to begin. And notice what happens. The celestials praise the Lamb. They're the first ones. Let's look in verse 11 and 12. He said, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and here it is, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angelic hosts are praising the Lamb because they have been waiting the longest to see God's plan of redemption completed. The angels have been the constant witnesses of all salvation history, haven't they? They remember Satan's rebellion and the third of the angelic comrades that fell with him. They were there at the dawn of time when God hung the sun and the moon and the stars in their orbits. They watched as Adam and Eve plunged the human race into ruin. They saw God's people being rescued from slavery They praised Christ when He was born as a babe in Bethlehem. They comforted Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. They stood ready for the command to be given that they would rush over the edge of heaven and rescue Jesus from the cross. But the command never came. And they gladly were there on Easter morning to roll the stone away and say, He is not here, He is risen indeed. To say that the angels are invested in the redemption program of God is the understatement of the Bible. They want to see their God and their King and their Commander rule once and for all. And so they praise what's about to happen. And then the church praises the Lamb. Notice what the church sings. Verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests who are God and they shall reign on the earth. The church sings a new song. In fact, it's a different song. The angels can't sing this with the church because the blood-bought know what it's like to feel the power of amazing grace. Because we've been saved and we've been redeemed. The angels, on the other hand, they don't have an experience of salvation like we do. An angel can't give a testimony of, I once was lost, but now I'm found. There's no saved angels because salvation isn't for them. Jesus didn't go to the cross for the angelic host. He went for fallen you and for fallen me. We're more privileged than even the celestial hosts of heaven because we have a testimony of grace. We can sing amazing grace and know what that's all about. Notice what the Bible said in verse 8. The Bible said that they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, notice which are the prayers of the saints. Do you know how precious that verse is right there? It represents the collective prayers of all of God's people down through the ages. God has captured every one of your tears in a bottle. He's kept all of your prayers, mom and dad. He's kept all of your prayers, saint of God. And they're being collected in heaven. And to be opened one day as a fulfillment of what Jesus is going to do. Think of all the times that we've said the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying in anticipation of this very moment. And these prayers are now poured out before the Lamb. It's open and it's like a sweet smelling perfume in the throne room of heaven because now, once and for all, all the prayers of God's people down through the ages are going to be answered the justice and peace and the end of suffering, then God's Word, all that it has promised is now about to come to pass to the church. And if you can't say amen to that, something's not right with your heart today. The church praises the Lamb. The celestials praise the Lamb. And then verse 13 and 14, the creation praises the Lamb. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friend, do you ever read a verse in the Scripture and you, you don't know how God's going to do it or how God is going to bring that to pass. This is one of those verses. I don't have any clue what this is going to be like. But the Bible says that when Christ takes the title deed of the earth, heaven breaks out in all applause. And the creation, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the fish in the sea are all going to join in with what's happening in the throne room of glory. And they're going to start praising God. Jesus said if God's people don't cry out, He'll cause the stones to cry out and worship Him. The animal kingdom is going to praise God. Why? Because they've been under the curse too. And the curse is about to be reversed. I don't know how the schools of fishes in the sea are going to sing, but the Bible says it's going to happen. And God made them to where they could swim under there. And I just believe it and take it by faith. I don't know how the birds of the air are going to praise God as they flap their wings. But the Bible says they're going to break out in a chorus of praise. The dogs and the cats on the earth. The beasts of the fields. The lions and tigers in the jungle. It's all going to pause on the earth as the Lamb takes the scroll. They're going to give glory to our God and Savior. Because something big is about to happen. Oh my goodness, church. Can you see this? Notice what it says. On the earth and under the earth. You know what that includes? Yes, even the demon hordes. Even the Antichrist. I believe even Satan himself will have to in some way acknowledge Christ's deity and Christ's sovereignty. Even the evil spirits who fight against Him will not be able to deny what Christ is about to do in this moment. And as we close this breathtaking scene, don't miss something important. Don't miss this. It said there that when John saw Christ in heaven, He was as though the Lamb who had been slain. In other words, Jesus is there in all His glorified body, but He still retains the scars of His sacrifice. He's pictured as the Lamb that was slain. Still in that body that Thomas touched a few days after the resurrection. Where he got to feel of the nail scars and the print in his side. You know what I thought about? Every scar tells a story, doesn't it? Some scars we hold inside. They're emotional scars. You've got a story of how you got it. Some of you have had surgery on your knee or... You took a bump on the head or you got in an accident and it's left a scar. A battle wound from being on the earth. And that scar has a story that's attached to it. Jesus in a glorified body has scars. Oh, and there's a story attached to those scars as well. Amen. A few years ago, in a little English village named Breckenwaith, there lived a quiet, lonely man named William Dixon. He was a widower. And he'd also lost his son in a tragic accident. Dixon would often be seen strolling up and down the town square. He admired the happy families on the streets and longed for his son and his wife who had gone. One day he looked out his window and he noticed that Across the street, in the neighborhood where he lived, a fire had broken out in a home. The neighbors were already gathering outside. They were scrambling for water. They were shouting for help. And Dixon ran out to join them in the bucket brigade to try and put out this fire. And in that attempt to get everybody out, there was an elderly woman who was rescued. She was badly burned and she had breathed in a lot of smoke, but she was still clinging to life. And Dixon asked the lady, He said, is there anybody else inside? And she said, yes, my grandson is still in there. And so William Dixon, he walked around one side of the other looking for a way to get up because the lady told him that he was on the second floor. He looked and there was an iron drainage pipe that was part of the guttering connected to the house. He laid hold of that drainage pipe and it was superheated from the fire. He took his shirt off, he wrapped his arms up and he started climbing up that pole to get to the second story window. And sure enough, he went into the house and he brought the little boy out and he was safe and sound. A few days later, the grandmother succumbed to her injuries and the little boy was now going to be an orphan. The village held a meeting to determine the fate of this child. Who would lay claim to the little orphan boy? The meeting was called to order And one good citizen came forward. He made his credentials known. And he said, I'm of good standing in the community. I have plenty of money. I can buy this child a good education. I can provide every need that he has. And it seemed like the case was settled. This very wealthy man would be the most logical choice to take the life of this child. Then as they were about to adjourn, William Dixon came forward. He said a few words. He said, I don't have any money. I don't have title or rank or wealth. He said, but here's what I do have that nobody else has here. And he took the bandages off of his arms and his legs and he said, I've got scars. And you see, that hot iron pipe that he climbed up had burned him severely. And when it came to a vote, the man with the scarred hands took the little orphan boy home a father once more because the love that he had was written on his body. And friend, I'm telling you, when you see the Lamb as slain, you will understand that those scars tell the story of God's salvation plan down through the ages. No one has ever loved you like Jesus has. And the scars on His body will tell a story throughout eternity that will be told and retold throughout the ages. The high price that Christ paid for you and for me, for the church, to be there with Him. There's going to only be one man-made thing in glory, and that's the scars on the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are a forever relic of the old fallen world. And they'll tell that great love story that was composed and written and read. And those scars will forever sing and tell the church this... I have loved you with an everlasting love. And they will remind us, He chose the nails. He chose the cross for you and for me. And better yet, the scars will tell us this throughout the ages, that the Lamb has overcome, and He is worthy to be crowned with many crowns and to lay hold of His inheritance and rule and reign. You see, he took the worst that this earth and that the devil and that the evil men could throw at him and he overcame. And the Lamb is worthy today, church.